Let us turn in God's word together to Colossians chapter 1. We'll look at verses 15 and 16 this evening. We'll read verses 15 through 20 to get the whole of this hymn of praise to Christ. Let us bow our heads together in prayer. Great God of heaven, we bow now in your majestic and glorious presence, asking for your forgiveness for our poor ability to comprehend your majesty and glory, but also we we confess our great gratitude, feeble though it is, that you are a gracious and merciful God, that you have condescended to us in Jesus Christ to reconcile us to yourself and to bring us into the fullness of your presence on that blessed day when we shall see Jesus Christ face to face and be transformed into his glorious image. Help me now to lisp forth the praise of this eternal Son of God. Help us now, and by the power of your Spirit, open our eyes that we may see this blessed Savior whom our souls love. And if there are any here who do not know him, may the glory, the proclamation of his glory, bring conversion. And we ask these things in the name of the exalted Son of God, Jesus Christ our Savior. Amen. Please stand for the reading of God's holy, inspired, and infallible word, Colossians 1, beginning at verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Paul finished his prayer from verses 9 through 14, finishing that prayer speaking of Christ, God the Son, quote, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, end of verse 14. Having finished his prayer, focusing on Christ, Paul moves now into this famous hymn of praise to Christ from verses 15 through 20. Regardless of whether Paul has implemented an already existing hymn, or whether Paul is the original human author of this hymn, what we have here is the God-breathed scripture. And this section perfectly fits the context of Colossians and perfectly equips the church in Colossae to combat the Colossian heresy. In this hymn, or this poem, Paul leads us into one of the deepest and most sustained reflections on the majesty and beauty of Christ in all of Holy Scripture. Pastor Paul knows that the Colossians need deep and high Christology, 
doctrine or teaching about the person and work of Christ in order to combat the false teaching they have, that they had seen creeping up in their church. This Colossian heresy insisted that Christ was great, but he was not enough. This false teaching said, you need to appeal to other cosmic spirit authorities in order to find spiritual fullness. Christ may get you something, but he won't get you everything you need. According to this false teaching, the universe was filled with spiritual powers of all sorts, and you could not achieve ultimate spiritual fullness without taking them all into consideration. Christ is great, but he is not fully divine, not supreme, not sovereign, not sufficient. That was the Colossian heresy that Paul wanted to destroy, and he begins to really aim at it here in this hymn of praise to Christ. As far as the structure of this famous hymn goes, there are three sections. There are two main stanzas with one transition between them. Stanza one is verses 15 and 16, which we'll look at this evening. The transition is from verses 17 to 18a, the first half of 18, and stanza 2, verses 18b through 20. This first stanza, verses 15 and 16, our passage this evening, focuses particularly on Christ prior to his incarnation and earthly ministry 2,000 years ago. In other words, this first stanza focuses on the pre-existence of Christ. That simply means his existence as the eternal Son of God prior to his revelation in history. Christ is not a moral, spiritual guru, a mere man or revolutionary. He is God the Son, the second person of the Blessed Trinity, And as God, he has a special and exalted status over all the created order. That is what this first stanza in this hymn is about. And we'll look at this first stanza in three points. First of all, we see God the Son, the image of God. God the Son, the image of God. First half of verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God. God the Son is the image of God. This is the Son's eternal relation to God the Father prior to creation and apart from creation. In the one true and living God, there is unity and diversity, oneness and threeness. This unity and diversity in the Godhead are equally basic, equally important, equally true. Herman Bovink says, the unity of the divine being opens up itself in a threefold existence. It is a unity that derives the Trinity from within its own self. So when Paul takes us back before the foundation of the world here, prior to creation, apart from creation, he is showing us here in the first half of verse 15 who God the Son is in relation to God the Father. Eternally and essentially, the Son images the Father. This is a reference to relations within the Trinity, 
intra-Trinitarian relation, how God the Son relates to God the Father. Now, at this point, many would object. Many would say, Paul is talking here about the incarnation of the Son, how the Son took human flesh to himself. Some want to argue that what Paul is talking about here is that Christ in his physical manifestation, his assuming human flesh to himself, Christ is the image of the invisible God as man. That is how Christ shows us who God is. Now that is 100% true. It's just not what Paul is talking about at this point. You see, Paul is saying in the first half of verse 15 something about who Christ is, not what Christ became. You see that there? He from all eternity is the image of the Father. The Son with the Father and the Holy Spirit are one God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory. Shorter Catechism and answer 6. Especially in light of the rest of verse 15 and also in verse 16, which bring into view the Son's relation to creation, we have to appreciate that we are talking about who God the Son is before his incarnation, who the triune God is in himself. God the Son is the exalted creator prior to his incarnation. And God the Son is the eternal image of God prior to and apart from his incarnation. So at this point in the hymn, Paul is fixing our eyes on the blessed mystery of person-to-person relations in the Trinity. Think of the persons of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Each of these three persons is wholly identical with the divine essence. Each of these three persons is fully God. And as the three persons relate to one another, the Father is unbegotten, the Son is eternally begotten of the Father, and the Holy Spirit eternally proceeds from the Father and the Son. Listen to how Calvin summarizes. He says, In each hypostasis, in each person of the Trinity, the whole divine nature is understood with this qualification that to each belongs his own peculiar quality. The Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God, and they are distinct from one another by discriminating personal properties. In light of the Colossian heresy, the false teaching at Colossae, Paul, of course, is focusing on the Son, the Son's relation to the Father. Paul is emphasizing the full deity, the co-eternality, and the co-equality of the Son with the Father here. Herman Ritterboss says, By the designation, image of God, the Son is on the one hand distinguished from God, and on the other, identified with God as the bearer of the divine glory. This is the same kind of witness we see at other key points in the New Testament. Think of the opening of John's gospel, John 1, 1 through 4. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, 
and the life was the light of men. John emphasizes there that the eternal Son was not only with God in the beginning, the eternal Son was God. With respect to the one simple, undivided, divine essence, the Son is identical with that divine essence. And with respect to the Father, the Son was with the Father, as John says, eternally begotten of the Father. And I think Paul is picking up on something else John writes here when John in John chapter 1 verse 4 says, in him, in the word, was life, and the life was the light of men. Whether it's John saying the word is the light of men, or Paul's we'll see later on saying that by and through and for Christ all things were created, when the apostles see creation, whether outside of man or within man, they see not a generic deity, but God the Son, in natural revelation. The New Testament witness goes on to emphasize the full deity of God the Son, that famous hymn in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, where Paul says Christ was in the form of God and had full equality with God. Perhaps most similar to our passage this evening, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. In these last days... God has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So here in Hebrews 1, similar to Colossians 1, the eternal Son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of God's nature, or here in Colossians, the image of the invisible God. So very clearly then, the Son participates in the divine essence just as the Father. And just as clearly, as far as person-to-person relations are concerned within the Godhead, the Son receives his personal distinction from the Father since he is the son of the father. Listen again to Calvin quoting Augustine and then Calvin's own comments. Christ, with respect to himself, is called God. With respect to the father, son. Again, the father, with respect to himself, is called God. With respect to the son, father. Insofar as he is called father, With respect to the Son, he is not the Son. Insofar as he is called the Son, with respect to the Father, he is not the Father. Insofar as he is called both Father with respect to himself and Son with respect to himself, he is the same God. Therefore, when we speak simply of the Son without regard to the Father, we well and properly declare him to be of himself. And for this reason, we call him the sole beginning. But when we mark the relation that he has with the father, we really make the father the beginning of the son. Cliff Notes version, the son is not God because he's related to the father. 
The Son is God of Himself, but the Son is the Son in relation to the Father. So the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are identical with the divine essence of themselves, but they have distinguishing personal properties in relation to one another. Paul is beginning to show us here and develop this Trinitarian doctrine that has been going on for millennia after the apostles. Paul is showing us something about the Son here, something the Colossian heresy fails to appreciate, something the church needs to appreciate. God the Son is God of Himself, and God the Son is distinct yet inseparable from God the Father. Charles Hodge emphasizes the unity of these three divine persons in this way. As the essence of the Godhead is common to the several persons, they have in common intelligence, will, and power. They have a common intelligence, will, and power. There are not in God three intelligences, three wills, three powers, The three are one God and therefore have one mind and will. A common knowledge implies a common consciousness. This is the Pauline version, the Son as the image of the invisible God, of John saying that the Son is the only begotten of the Father. That references the unique and intimate and divine relationship of the Son to the Father. That is what Paul is getting at here. William Hendrickson summarizes, God the Son must be eternally God's image. With respect to his deity, he cannot belong to the category of time and space. He cannot be a mere creature, but must be in a class by himself, raised high above every creature. Let me ask you, are you confused at this point? So am I. These are the highest mysteries that sinful creatures could ever contemplate, but this kills the Colossian heresy that Jesus Christ is somehow insufficient must be added to. He is the self-sufficient God who is very God of very God. Paul begins his hymn in this way. That leads us secondly to God the Son, Lord of creation. God the Son, Lord of creation. That's the second half of verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Moving on in the hymn now, we've gone from the eternal Son's relation to God now to the eternal Son's relation to outside God, to creation. As the eternal Son relates to God, he is image. As the the eternal Son relates to creation, he is firstborn. Those two halves of verse 15, image of the invisible God and firstborn of all creation, explain one another and show us the Son's pre-existence prior to his manifestation in the fullness of time in the flesh. This title, Firstborn, has gotten a lot of misunderstanding. Firstborn of all creation 
does not mean that God the Son was created. That God the Son was created is the heresy of Arianism and Jehovah's Witnesses today. I remember when I was in high school, one of our Bible teachers asked us, look at Colossians 1.15. Who is the firstborn of all creation? And I, thinking that I knew the answer, said, Jesus. And my teacher said, oh, so he was the first creation? And I went, uh, Adam? So my teacher encouraged me to, to dive in and study, and I went home and found commentaries and read about what the firstborn really means. This heresy of Arianism that says that Christ is created, misunderstanding what firstborn means, Arianism says that Christ is the greatest of God's creatures, but he is still merely a creature. He is not co-eternal or consubstantial with the Father. And this is soul-damning heresy to say that God the Son had a beginning. That is not what firstborn means. Firstborn does not mean the first one to be born like a firstborn child. Firstborn communicates uniqueness, special status, and dignity in rank. Firstborn communicates exaltation over creation, not being part of creation. There is distinction here. Firstborn has a comparative force. It is not first in a series, first one to be created along with other creatures, It means preeminence over creation, exaltation over creation. So Paul is introducing to us here a distinction, a qualitative distinction between creator and creature. When it comes to that creator-creature line, God the Son is on the creator side, and literally all of created reality is on the creature side. God the Son does not participate in the becoming of creation, of of change and, and chance and decay. He is on the creator side. He is, he does not become. God the Son is the uncreated creator. He lies outside the circle of creatures. This is, again, a qualitative comparison. The entire created order lies below God the Son, And God the Son is infinitely exalted above the entire created order. That leads us thirdly to see God the Son, instrument and goal of creation. God the Son, instrument and goal of creation. And this is verse 16. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So explaining what it means that God the Son is firstborn over all creation, Paul explains in verse 16. God the Son possesses a superiority in rank over all created things because he is the one by whom 
they were created. Put it this way, God the Son cannot be a creature because he is the one by whom all creation came into existence. Do you see that? He cannot be a creature because all creatures came into existence by him. Again, he lies outside the circle of creatures because he was instrumental in creation. He is qualitatively distinct from creation because he is the creator. All created reality is distinct from him because all created reality came to be by him. Notice how Paul unpacks all that has been created. Whatever is not God is created. Notice how Paul elaborates this. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. There's a poetic structure there. Heaven, earth, visible, invisible. In heaven corresponds to invisible, just as on earth corresponds to visible. So the creation of all things on earth is the creation of visible things, which includes the earth and the visible heavens, the sky and the stars. Therefore, the heaven corresponding to what is invisible is the creation of what we call heaven, the invisible heavens, the distinct realm where God dwells with glorified souls awaiting the resurrection. This is a distinct realm. This is a distinct reality. Someone in college I knew once said, if you get in a spaceship and fly up in space, you'll eventually get to heaven. No, you cannot. This is a distinct reality that cannot be entered into by human ingenuity. It is a distinct realm where God dwells with his image-bearing creatures. Listen to Lane Tipton's definition of heaven. It is the presently veiled realm where the glory of the triune God dwells in its fullness forever to be worshipped by his creatures. Heaven is the realm God created so that he can dwell with his creatures, whether angelic or image-bearing. So in the beginning, there was not God in heaven. There was only God. Heaven is a created place. Heaven is a created place so that image bearers and angelic beings can worship and glorify God in a place that he has condescended to, to be with his creatures. Heaven is a created realm. Heaven is the realm God created so that he can be glorified and enjoyed by his image-bearing creatures as their blessedness and reward forever, which is what makes us distinct from the angels. Heaven is the place, put it another way, heaven is the place where God is glorified and enjoyed for his own sake. Glorifying and enjoying him because he is God, not because of something we get from him, but because we get him. So this reference to the invisible heavens here, something seen throughout the Old Testament. Genesis 1.1, 1, 1. 
in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. These two realms, the unseen, invisible, heavenly realm, the place where Adam could have attained by his obedience, both himself and his posterity, to enter into the highest heavens to be with God, as well as God created the earth, the visible realm as well. Or Nehemiah 9.6, You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven the heaven of heavens with all their host and the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. Perhaps most famously, Isaiah chapter 6, that vision of Isaiah when he looks up and sees not the, invisible, not the visible heavens, the, the night sky, but the time-space continuum is opened briefly, and Isaiah is able to see into the otherwise veiled, invisible realm where God is worshipped and glorified incessantly. Isaiah chapter 6. In the year the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. To make one comment about what Isaiah saw in that vision, he saw a realm where God is worshipped and glorified incessantly for his own sake. Later on in Isaiah chapter 66, verse 1, speaking of this invisible heavens, thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. So this invisible realm of heaven, where the triune God is glorified and dwells in the presence of his creatures to be glorified by them, whether the angels or, the, or his image bearers. This is a place that was created by the Son, later on we see in verse 16, through the Son and for the Son. So along with the Father and the Holy Spirit, heaven is a place that is located on where the attention is located on the Son. The Son is worshipped and glorified there. God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit created this realm for him to be glorified for all eternity. Notice how Paul mentions, also in verse 16, the thrones, dominions, or rulers, or authorities. Those things were created by through, and for the Son as well. This is probably a reference to the angels, the, the cosmic forces, the, the spiritual forces at work that the Colossian heresy was insisting. You need to access them, make use of these angelic powers to get the total package of spiritual fullness. So Paul mentions them here, Whatever these are, specifically, thrones, dominions, or rulers, or authorities, whatever the Colossian heresy is saying you need to add to Christ to get the whole package, Paul is saying 
Oh, you think that is what is necessary to add on to your spiritual life? Those are things the Son of God created. Those are things the Son of God are pre, is preeminent over. Why do you think you need them when you have Him? He is the one who created them. They were created by, through, and for Him. They are nothing compared to Him. Don't look to them for spiritual fullness. They're creatures just like you. Look to the Creator, to God the Son, the Lord of all creation. All you need is in Him. All things, Paul summarizes in verse 16, were created through Him and for Him. Through Him, that God the Son is the instrument of creation, and for Him, God the Son is the goal of creation. He is the instrument of creation, the agent of it, and the goal of it. All things have to do with Him. Nothing can be contemplated apart from Him, and all things find their goal and end in worshiping and glorifying this Son, God of God, very God of very God. So when Paul sees creation, just as when John sees creation in the prologue to his gospel, when these apostles see creation, once again, they do not see the possibility of a God. They do not see that God probably made all things. They do not see that a generic deity made all things. They see specifically God the Son. It is God the Son who has his marks all over the created order. He is displayed in all the things he has made. And we see this most, more clearly with the light of his, of his inerrant word shining the light of his, revealed, of, of his revealed glory in the creation. Just as there is perfect and exhaustive representation in the Trinity, there is per- perfect and exhaustive representation of the Trinity in creation. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit represent and indwell one another. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit represent and are identical with the one divine essence. And for that reason, you and I are constantly confronted by this God because all of created reality represents and reveals Him whether you suppress the truth by your unrighteousness and do not see it, or whether you do see it by new eyes of of grace and faith. So do you see something, believer, of the beauty and glory of God the Son, the second person of the Trinity? He is the image of the invisible God, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, in the words of the Nicene Creed. He is the image of God because he is God. With respect to God the Father, God the Son indwells him. I and the Father are one, John 10.30. I am in the Father and the Father is in me, John 14.11. With respect to the one simple undivided, underived divine essence, God the Son is identical with the divine essence. Truly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. John 8, 58. He is the second person of the Trinity. 
Listen to the Athanasian Creed. In this trinity, none of the three persons is before or after another. None is greater or less than another. But the whole three persons are co-eternal and co-equal. So that in all things, the unity in trinity and the trinity in unity is to be worshipped. He, therefore, that will be saved must think of the trinity. God the Son is, with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, all deserving of worship and glory. He is the firstborn of all created reality. All things were made by, through, and for him. That is what the Colossian church needed to hear in order to combat the Colossian heresy. The Colossian heresy said, you need something in addition to Christ to get, to, to get you to the goal. But Paul shows us Christ is the goal, the goal of all creation. The Colossian heresy said, Christ is great, but he's less than divine. He's part of creation. But Paul shows us Christ is divine. Christ is prior to creation. Christ is the uncreated creator. He is preeminent over all creation. And he is the one that you have to do with. Have you bowed before this sovereign Lord over all creation? And we'll see subsequently in the rest of this hymn to Christ, how Christ as the essential image of God created Adam as the created image of God. Christ is the archetype, the original. Adam is the ectype, the copy. But Christ as the essential image of God desired in humility to humble himself to redeem sinners, to redeem sinners from the, the, the work of Adam who plunged us into sin and misery. He who has the created image of God wanted to be more than he was, wanted to be divine, whereas Jesus, who was divine, wanted to become man. The essential deity of God the Son leads to, I know, I know no other way to express it, leads to his humility Whereas the created image of God, Adam, led, led, he was led to pride through the temptation of the, evil, of the evil one. And we'll see later in this hymn how Jesus Christ humbled himself to redeem and to save all that Adam plunged into sin and misery. I close with the words of John Owen. Look to the things of this world. Wives, children, possessions, estates, power, friends, honor. How amiable they are. How desirable unto the thoughts of the most of men. But he who has obtained a view of the glory of Christ will in the midst of them all say, Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none on earth that I desire besides thee. Psalm seventy-three twenty-five. For who in the heaven can be compared unto the Lord? And among the sons of the mighty can be likened unto the Lord. Psalm 89, 6. He himself out of his infinite love and ineffable condescension upon the sight and view of his church and his own graces in her, wherewith she is adorned, does say, Thou hast ravaged my, ravished my heart, my sister, my spouse. Thou hast ravished my heart with one of thine eyes, with one chain of thy neck. Song of Solomon 4.9 How much more ought a believing soul upon a view of the glory of Christ, in whom it pleased the Father that all fullness should dwell, to say, Thou hast ravished my heart, taken it away from me. O thou whom my soul loveth, 
one glance of thy glorious beauty upon me hath quite overcome me, hath, hath left no heart in me unto things here below. If it be not thus with us frequently, if we value not this object of our minds and affections, if we are not diligent in looking up unto him to behold his glory, it is because we are carnal and not in any good measure partakers of the promise that our eyes shall see the king in his beauty. And may God open our eyes to see the beauty of God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, who is our Savior and our Lord now and forever.